Turn to John chapter 12. John 12. So, um, if you remember, we started the Gospel of John two years ago? A year ago? It all kind of runs together at some point. But, um, but we took a break um, towards the end of last year and, and hit a few different smaller books to kind of um, just break it up a little bit. And we started back last week, um, two weeks ago, in the Gospel of John in chapter 12. And um, one of the beautiful things, and I, I know I've said this recently, well, I've said it a lot, but I, I recently, is that, you know, when I felt it was time for us to take a break in the, in the Gospel of John and to hit some smaller stuff throughout the summer and, and like that. We did Summer in the Psalms, and um, I didn't necessarily plan to stop at a particular point so that I could pick up at a particular point and that it would lead us right to Easter kind of deal. Um, but when I was getting ready to get back into the Gospel of John and I started planning out the next period of time, it was pretty amazing to see how um, it actually is going to lead us right up to Easter um, without manipulating the text. So we'll actually follow the text all the way up to Good Friday and Easter. And that to me is just one of the beautiful things about being able to preach God's Word is understanding that it's more than sufficient enough. And, and that he um, is far more creative than I could ever dream to be. You know, I'm, it, it kind of frees me up. I don't, I don't have to come up with these, like, cool sermon series. I just open God's word and preach it and know that it's more than adequate and it's sufficient enough to, to speak to our lives. And, um, and I'm thankful for that. But today, as we get into John, the end of John 12, um, we're going to be kind of looking at this this contention between belief and unbelief. Um, you know, by nature, we are uh, very skeptical people, right? So, if I'll give you an example, so the building that we were having our conference in was massive, and there were other events happening in the same place, and we actually had to walk past one of the events to get to our hotel. So, anyway. And the whole time, we were just like, man, this is odd. We, we don't understand what's going on. We even tried to look it up and still did not understand what was taking place. Um, it was some type of, I don't know, wealth thing. Um, you know, and, and in fact, we wound up in the hotel where we were staying. We got on the elevator um, one day with who, come to find out, was one of the speakers at this other event. And we didn't know that at the time, but, you know, he rolls onto the elevator and he is decked out and he has this cart full of luggage. He's by himself and he has like a Gucci suitcase, a Prada. I mean, this guy had more money's worth of luggage than I'll probably make like, you know, in a long time. And I'm but anyway, and so we're walking past this event and I see his picture. and I'm like, oh, so but anyway, what I. I am by nature extremely skeptical, and I think we all, to a degree, are. Um, and anytime we go into something new, we're kind of hesitant to do that, or something that we're not familiar with, we, we question. And without any hard proof, it's hard for us to kind of begin to believe anything, right? I am. I want to see facts. I want to see evidence. I want to see truth, right? But, but even in that, there are times where we remain highly doubtful, right? To where we can be put all the facts and all the evidence directly in front of us, and we still don't want to believe it, right? The Christian faith is no different than that. So I wasn't even necessarily talking about Christianity. I was talking about just anything in life that is unfamiliar to us, that even when we see facts, sometimes we probably tend to think, 
these have been skewed to make me believe or think in it in one particular way or another. But when it comes to the Christian faith, it's no different than that, right? We have the truth of God's word right in front of us, and, and we see and we hear the truth of God's word, but how often is it that we just don't believe it? And so today, we're going to be looking at this kind of contention between belief and unbelief, and I want to um, just kind of state that the main point of where we're going is this, that because of sin, our natural tendency is unbelief, but God gives the gift of belief through the work of Jesus. So it's through Jesus that we get to believe, and the other side of that is that we are naturally a people of unbelief in relation to who God is. So, if we could, I would like to pray for us, and then we will actually break my typical method. There will not be three points. There are going to be two today. And so I will read the text with each of those points, but I just want to pray for us, and I want to pray for our time together um, right now. God, we, again, are so full of thankfulness that we have Jesus, and that you give us your spirit for those who trust in you, and that you have given us your word. And we know that your word is inerrant, it's infallible, it's inspired, but it is so also very much sufficient. And so we ask now that as we prepare to um, look at this passage that any of the skepticism we may have will just kind of be put to the side and we would just hear the word that you have for us so that we would see you. And also not simply just see you, but that we would see ourselves in light of you. Because as we do that, Father, your word shows us that we will love you more because we will begin to see and sense the greatness of the grace that you have shown us in Christ. So we ask that you would bless the reading of your word and that you through your spirit would speak into each and every one of our hearts and our lives this morning. Because the beauty of who you are and the beauty of your word is that regardless of what baggage we brought in through these doors today, that this one passage can speak to each and every one of our lives. So we ask that you would make much of yourself in our time together, that your word would be savoring, and healing to us. As one old preacher said, that it be for us a balm that covers every wound. We give you thanks for your word. And we give you thanks for the gift of Christ who makes salvation possible for people who are greatly undeserving of it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So we're going to begin in verse 37, looking at the danger of unbelief. So John chapter 12, starting in verse 37, and I'm going to go ahead and read all of the verses that we will look at with this first point. So starting in verse 37, Though he had done so many signs before them, talking about Jesus, they still did not believe in him. 
so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many men of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. So the question when we start to look at the danger of unbelief is, what is unbelief? Now there are some interesting things that I want to note right off the bat that you see here, and that's that John is quoting the prophet Isaiah, right? In Isaiah 53 is the first part. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And then after that, he quotes Isaiah chapter 6. Now, if you remember, Isaiah was written way before Christ was ever born. So these are prophecies speaking of the Messiah, speaking of Jesus that would come, okay? So over 700 years before Christ would be born, Isaiah writes these words. And so we ask the question, what is unbelief? Because the reality is, as we begin to open up what that question is, is that many simply do not believe. It's not hard for us to look at just our everyday life, right? People we work with, people we interact with, our family members, uh, friends, and see the lack of belief in who God is. Every day we know that people are dying without trusting in the saving work of Christ. Our world is full of unbelievers. Um, One of the So the main thrust of the conference we were at was missions. And in that, there was a set of statistics that they mentioned that I'm going to try to get right. I did not write these down because I'd already finished this before we left. But according to the Joshua Project, which goes and um, figures out where the unreached people groups of the world are. Now, these statistics probably actually don't even tell the complete story, you know, because it depends on how they define unreached, right? So in our view, unreached would be people who have no access to the gospel of Jesus, right? So one of the examples would be if you worked in a large place and you said that it was full of unbelievers, you could not say that that workplace was an unreached people group because you are there, if you are a believer, right? So they have access to the gospel. It's just dependent on whether or not you're faithful to proclaim it. So their statistics basically show that over 41% of our world is an unreached, are made up of unreached peoples. 41% of our world are people who have zero access to the gospel of Jesus. Now, that's unreached, 41%. Now, if you factor in all of the many people who have access, but who still reject the gospel of Christ, that number would go up tremendously. So you see, there are plenty of people who do not believe, which means there is more than enough work for us to do as the people of God. There's also something that's interesting with unbelievers, people who do not believe in the gospel of Jesus. You typically have two types. Those who are very militant in their rejection of Jesus, right? 
who hate the name of Jesus and verbalize their hatred towards the name of Jesus and the works of Jesus. And then you have some who are more subtle in their rejection of Jesus, meaning they act like they just don't really care. Like, okay, you, you, you speak of Jesus, okay. There's no, no skin off my back, I'm good. But regardless of how our rejection of Jesus looks or plays itself out, it is still unbelief. Unbelief is unbelief. We either believe in Jesus or we reject Jesus. So what is unbelief? Matt Carter writes that unbelief is the conscious rejection of God and his word. Right? Now, for years, we talk about the gospel and unreached people and people dying without hearing the gospel and the questions are always raised. Well, what about those people? Well, Paul answers that question for us in Romans 1. Okay? He says that because of just the vast beauty of God's creation that we are left without excuse. He follows that up a few chapters later in chapter 3, and he says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So all the way back to Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve failed and they gave into temptation, they ate of the fruit that they were commanded not to eat of, that is what we know to be the fall of man. That's where sin entered into the world. And from that point on, the scripture says that because of one man's sin, all have sinned. And then a little later, he says, and the penalty for that sin, the wages of that sin is death. So we are without excuse. We are actually sitting here looking and reading and hearing the word of God. So we are greatly without excuse. But again, he says that unbelief is the conscious rejection of God and his word. You say that to be true, but do I have to believe that? Hmm? I don't have to believe in Jesus to live a good life. I don't have to go to church to be a Christian. Eh, that's not what the Word of God declares. We are surrounded by plenty of folks who don't believe. Now, the thing is, is we have to be careful not to categorize unbelievers as people who are not part of a church, who are not associating themselves with Jesus, especially in the cultural South where we are, where being a Christian is the expected and usually assumed way of life. So we go to church at least on two major days of the year. Our families go to church, our parents or grandparents, and so we associate ourselves with Jesus. And because we associate ourselves with Jesus, we have no problem with Jesus, but that doesn't make us, you know, bad, right? Well, actually, it does. Because as we just read in Romans 3, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There are no good people. I, I, everything we hear in our world would tell you otherwise, but the truth of the gospel is that there are no good people. There are sinners who are desperately in need of the saving grace of God. There is no middle ground. So... In our context, in our lives, we are faced with, and some of us in here today might even fall into this category, to where we associate ourselves with Jesus, but we have never actually fully trusted Jesus with our life and salvation. There is simply no middle ground. You either believe or you don't. One of my favorite people in Christian church history is George Whitfield. He was a, um, a preacher from Europe who is considered one of the greatest preachers since 
Peter and Paul and Jesus, right? So in the history of the New Testament church, George Whitfield is one of the greatest preachers we've ever known. He was part of a great awakening in Europe and in the United States. He traveled across the seas. He uh, would preach wherever he was. If he was walking down the road and there was a group of people, he would preach to them. He, there are multiple stories, but um, George Whitfield was known um, as a man who was passionate about the Word of God, but even more so about his thundering voice. There were rumors that he could, not really rumors, he actually did preach to, um, in one instance, around 100,000 people. Now, we say, well, that, that's pretty cool. Okay, this is before we had electricity. This is before we had voice amplification. This was before he could wear one of these things with speakers. And because of that, he kind of met some interesting people. One of who became his greatest friends was Benjamin Franklin. He met on one of his earliest trips to the United States, and Benjamin Franklin was curious because he had heard that this man could preach to so many people that his voice thundered. So he asked if he could do an experiment with George Whitfield. And in his experiment, what he come to realize was that George Whitfield's voice could be heard from over five to six miles away when he would preach. That's only a thing of God, okay? I mean, I'm loud, and I can be very loud, but I'm not sure you could hear me from five miles away, okay? But that began a strong friendship between two polar opposite people. Now... George Whitfield is also known as one of the greatest evangelists of church history. Showering people with the gospel. Their friendship lasted for over 30 years. Whitfield died before Benjamin Franklin, and I, I've told the story of how he died before, and I'd love to tell you that later, but I don't have time to do that now. But Benjamin Franklin wrote later, after Whitfield had died, that it would have pained his dear friend to know that he still was not trusting in the Lord. And as far as we know, Benjamin Franklin died without trusting in Christ. But the question is, is how could someone be such a close dear friend with one of the greatest gospel proclaimers in history and never trust in Jesus? And that kind of leads us to the next point. Why do some people simply not believe? See, here's the deal. Defining unbelief isn't necessarily something that's going to rattle anyone's cage. It's a pretty simple thing. You either believe or you don't. You either you know, understand and you trust or you just don't. Right? That, that's not something that would just you know, irk us. However, when you get to this side of it, People get pure militant and angry. Why do some not believe? Again, the truth and the reality that we saw early is, earlier is that many just don't believe, right? So we've established that. Now we need to understand that the reality is, is that there are many that simply won't. The beginning of this passage, I said, quotes two parts of Isaiah, right? Now, Isaiah, being an Old Testament book, is actually known as the fifth gospel because it is so saturated with Jesus. Isaiah 53, he says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us, and who has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Right? We need to back up just a hair. Though he had done so many signs before them. This is Jesus. All right, so again, this is on the heels of Jesus um, having dinner at Simon the leper's home, which is someone who he healed from leprosy. Okay? And the dinner at Simon the leper's home was to commemorate from the family and to, uh, to, just to be 
grateful and thankful that they had just seen their brother Lazarus raised from death to life by Jesus. Okay, So they had just seen two primary, like well-known things that should not happen. Leprosy doesn't go away. Yet in the case of Simon, Jesus heals him, and people don't get out of the grave, especially not after they've been there for four days. Yet Jesus shows up, his dear friend Lazarus is dead, he weeps, and then he says, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus walks out of that beast, alive. So they had just seen these great miracles, but they had seen so much more than that. And they're saying now, though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that, listen, the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah, again, 700 years prior, might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Verse 39. Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah says, and this is quoting Isaiah chapter 6, he, God the Father, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. So God has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart. Hmm. Now, I want to remind you what Isaiah 6 is. Isaiah 6 is um, this point of the Gospel of Isaiah where before that, Isaiah was... Um, a known prophet of God um, who had the tendency to bring quite the harsh message. And so time after time after time after time, in the first five chapters of Isaiah, he is saying, woe to you for a host of reasons. But the context is that actually the people of God kind of had it easy. There was a king who was not a God-fearing king, but he actually treated the people of God well. And then he dies. And the next in line to inherit the throne, not so much. He despised the people of God. So Isaiah crying out to God in fear that the people of God would probably taste death, or at least imprisonment or enslavement, cries out. In Isaiah chapter 6, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And you see that God gives Isaiah this vision that it's okay. Uzziah might have died, and this next king might be full of hatred, but I'm still God. And Isaiah is seeing what's taking place, and he sees this vision of actually the Jesus that we read about in Revelation on his throne. And you have the seraphim on either side of this temple shouting to one another, holy, 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 which is the first of only two times in Scripture that we even see that happen. The other is in Revelation, I believe, chapter 5, where you also see the angels declaring, holy, holy, holy. These angels are actually made by God to be in the presence of the holiness of God because they're given six wings. Two, they cover the face, two, they cover the feet, and two, they cover, two, they flew. So think about this. Created beings by God to live in the complete presence of God all the time had to be made with such a way to veil their face constantly because the glory of God was so bright. And immediately following that, one of the angels takes um, these coals from a fire and he takes them down and he touches the lips of Isaiah and he says, your sins have been atoned for. Right? So it wasn't Isaiah's preaching that atoned for his sins. It wasn't Isaiah's work for the church that atoned for his sins. It was God sending atonement for his sins. He touches his lips, and then immediately after that, he says, Now who will go for us? 
And Isaiah says, here my Lord, send me. Sounds good, right? Isaiah sees a vision of the resurrected, powerful, enthroned Christ that he would not even see in his lifetime, right? But he knew God's promise and he saw it fulfilled much later. He saw that atonement would come through that Messiah. And then he's asked, who will go? And he declares, here am I, send me. And you can bet he's probably ready to go and preach the gospel like he's never preached the gospel before. And then God follows it up with a message, but like, oh, in case you didn't know, nobody's going to listen to you. Thanks, God. You're going to preach until you can't preach anymore and nobody's going to respond. And that's the sad reality. Is that many will and do reject God because of who we are. It's natural for us to reject God. We are by nature children of wrath. We're haters of God, enemies of God. John says, anti-Christ. Nothing within us longs after God. We rebel against Him because we don't want to surrender our wills to anyone. Sound familiar? It's Genesis, right? What was, what was the serpent's whole lie? You will not surely die. You'll just be as God. Hmm. I'll be as God. I'll know good and evil. I won't have to serve anyone because I will be the master. That's our heart, people. And because of our heart's condition, there's no amount of work or force or anything that will make anyone believe. I want to give you two primary examples of that from history. Constantine. Constantine comes to power and he declares that all of the nation will be God's people. They started carrying crosses, right? Now, let me ask you a question. Just because he said that the nation would be God's people, and just because they wore crosses and carried crosses, does that mean that all of those people gathered with him were automatically Christians? Not at all. Another example is much later in church history, just a few hundred years ago, with a man named Charles Finney. Charles Finney is known as the father of modern revivalism, which sounds like a good thing until you begin to study him and realize that he was nothing more than a pagan who had twisted and convoluted the word of God to where we, he wasn't actually preaching the word of God. But what he would do is install tactics and use great emotionalism in order to try to um, convince people that they should surrender to God. He was known for something called the anxious bench where people that look like they might be considering the gospel or at least terrified by the gospel because of the way he was preaching, they would bring down front and put on that and he was known for having like this death stare. Now, if you see what Finney was doing, he just passionately wanted people to meet Jesus. Mm. No, he was passionately concerned with seeing people make a decision based not on the word of God, but based on pure emotion and guilt alone. But that's not what we see in the word of God. Now, I am sure. Now, think if. I look out and I see a couple people like really tuned in like, hmm. God must be moving in that person. And I said, all right, y'all come here and we just put like this row of seats right here. Created our own little anxious bench. 
And the only way to be removed from that is to make a decision for Christ. How many of you would make a quick decision for Christ? You're not just going to sit there wanting someone to scream and yell at you, right? If I'm going to make a decision for Christ to get off of this bench, sign me up. So you can imagine the amount of work that it went, that it took to see all these people make decisions, but to never actually see that their hearts were changed. You see, true conversion is a matter of the heart. In other words, a true confession of faith in Jesus Christ comes from the heart. Seeing the greatness of God and knowing how much of a sinner and how damned I am without the grace of God. And then giving my life to Christ who I see and know is the only hope of my salvation. So again, back in verse 37, they had seen Jesus, they had heard Jesus, they had listened to him preach, they had seen his good works, and they still did not believe. Which leads us into this great contention that usually leaves some people not very happy. And it's The contention of sovereignty and depravity. Now, before I get into this, listen to the Word of God. Okay? Because there is a great chance that most of us probably grew up not hearing this quite this way. And we're going to have pushbacks. But at the end of the day, the word of God is the word of God. And that's what we want to see and hear. The ultimate answer to the question of why do some not believe is because of God's purpose. Again, Genesis, the fall of man led to human total depravity. No good people. Marred by sin. You have God in his holiness. You have sinful human beings. And there is this ravine between the two that cannot be crossed. Completely and utterly and totally separated from the holiness of God. Which means absolutely no hope of salvation. You might say, but wait a minute, I don't get that. Well, if we're by nature children of wrath, if there's nothing within us good, how can we save ourselves? Right? In other words, unbelief, what we're seeing here, right? So 37 and 38, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah, might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and he has hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn. And I would heal them. And Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory, that is the glory of Jesus, and he spoke of him. Nevertheless, Many, even of the authorities, believed in him, but for the fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. So in order, what, and what we see here is that unbelief is necessary to fulfill prophecy. God told Isaiah, Go! Preach this message. Tell people of what you have seen today but none of them are going to listen. So then, does this mean that it's God's plan for some to not believe? Ultimately, the answer is yes. And it's clear in Scripture. And I want to just hit a few of these to 
let you know that I'm not making it up. Deuteronomy chapter 29. Verses 2 through 4. I'm back up to verse 1. These are the words of the covenant that the Lord commanded Moses to make with the people of Israel in the land of Moab beside the covenant that he had made with them at Horeb. And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, You have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh, and to all his servants, and to all his land, the great trials that your eyes saw, the signs and those great wonders. But to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand, or eyes to see, or ears to hear. And then again, we have referred several times to Isaiah chapter 6, and I want to read a few verses from there as well, starting in verse... Let's go back to 8. Eight's not up there, sorry. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then I said, Here am I, send me. And he said, Go and say to this people... Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of the people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. And Isaiah actually responds to God and says, But how long, O Lord? God says, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people from far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land, and through a tenth remain in it, though a tenth remain in it, I will, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled, the holy seed is a stump. So we see then that ultimately the answer is yes, that it is God's plan for some not to believe. And we just saw that in Scripture. I'm not making it up. I didn't just you know, pull something out of an, another book to try to tell you that. And the fact is, is that this truth, what we just read in God's Word which we said in the very beginning is inerrant, infallible, inspired, and all-sufficient, that this truth that we just read in God's Word makes people angry. But it doesn't change the fact of it being truth. Because at the end of the day, here's what we see. God is sovereign. And God is holy. We are depraved, separated from a holy God, enemies of God. So then God has every right to do as he desires. Now, hold your finger in John and flip over to Romans chapter 9. Now, we could spend a year or two in Romans. I had to write my senior seminar paper on Romans chapter 9, verses 11. And I'm telling you, we could be in those three chapters alone for the rest of our days. But I want you to see what we read here, starting in... Oh, man. I'm going to run out of time. Just start at verse 1. It's not on there. Only 14 through 18 is on there. But you, you just got to see what's happening here, right? So at the end of chapter 8, I mean, you've heard us say that time and time again, right? That God is working all things together for the good of those whom he loves and are called according to his purpose, right? And then what shall we say to them to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? God didn't spare his own son, but he gave him up so that his people might be saved. And I'm kind of skimming through. And then in 39 it says that there's nothing that will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord, in chapter 9, verse 1. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Why? Because many of His people did not believe. 
For I could wish, verse 3, that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. So he's saying, I wish I could be cursed so that you would believe. That's how bad I want you to know the gospel of Jesus. Verse 4, they're Israelites and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants and the giving of the law, the worship and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Verse 6, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. So what did he say? But these are the Israelites. These are the chosen people, right? And you're saying they're not believing, they're not, they're, they're a curse, verse 6. But it's not as though the word of God has failed. What's it say? For not all who are Israel are descended from Israel belong to Israel. See, it wasn't about the nationality of the people of Israel being the heirs of the promise of God. It was about resting in the truth that God would save through his son. Verse 7, and not... All are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And this means that it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said about this time next year, I'll return and Sarah, who was old, right? Who was past her childbearing years. And, and she will have a son, verse 10. And not only so, but also when Rachel, Rebecca had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet conceived. Check that next line. Born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that the God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. And this is where we pick up. So what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Is this not unfair? Everything we know. Jacob should serve Esau. But here we see in God's word that God said, no, Jacob will be the leader and Esau will serve him. Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. Verse 15. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on who? God, who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So that he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. And we could go on and on and on tearing that apart. But we live in a culture where we hate the fact that God is sovereign. And we write books and we write songs and we build churches and we have events that are all based on the fact that we have some right to be called children of God. He actually goes on and I'm not going to read it. I'm just going to summarize it and ask you this question. Does the clay have a right to say to the potter, make me this way? Now, I know that most of you in here have probably not actually worked with pottery. There are a couple. So you're like, I don't understand. Every one of y'all has played with Play-Doh. You pop up that little plastic can and you pull that Play-Doh out. Does the Play-Doh say, I want you to make me into this? You're going to form me this way. No. We make it however we see fit. But yet... We get so angry at the fact that God is the capital P potter. 
So then we must remember that no matter how much our heart wants to object to these difficult truths, that doesn't change the fact that they are still truths. They are still in the word of God. And if we argue with that and if we say no, then what we have in essence done is we have denied God himself and said that he is lying. Because he has told us his word is more than sufficient enough. See, the truth is God's ways are not our ways. God's Thoughts are not our thoughts. Our opinions don't carry any weight in God's eternal purpose. So is there any injustice on God's part? Absolutely not. In fact, I want to point your attention to something that actually I just kind of saw for the first time in the last few days. I bet one of the most debated verses in all of Scripture is that, uh, uh, Romans 9.13. Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. Now, where does our attention immediately go in that? Esau hated. How could God, how could a loving God do that? But we completely forget the fact that it says, Jacob, I loved. Now, I don't know if you remember who Jacob was, but Jacob was a snake. He was a vile individual. Esau was actually a pretty good dude. Who does God save? Who does God set apart to be a part of his ultimate plan about bringing Christ into this world? Jacob. Again, Romans 3 says what? We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. 6.23, and the wages of that sin is death. I know we say it all the time, and I know we're about out of time, but just hang with me. Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3. Paul is telling that church, there is nothing in you good. And you have no hope. So in essence, it's God telling us that too. None of us are good. We have no hope. But verse 4 says what? But God. In other words... We're Jacob and he loved us. We have to remember that our views are ultimately skewed by our sin nature. We're people. A blip in time, but God is God. Listen to what D.A. Carson says. Now, some of this is kind of crazy and, and deep, and, and the words are not usual words we would use, but just, just track with me, okay? There are some of these um, new theologian, and even, well, old because they use old, old language, but some of these newer guys, they're just so smart. I, I sat down to read a, read a book by one of them one day, and after having to look up like five words on the first page, I was like, this is going to have to wait for another day. D.A. Carson, he says this, God's judicial hardening is not presented as the capricious manipulation of an arbitrary, potentant, cursing, morally neutral, or even morally pure beings. Now, what is he saying? That God's choice to harden the heart of people is not some manipulation, not some hate, hatred toward them, because they're some good or um, pure people, Right? So it's not that he's looking out and seeing a bunch of good people and he's going, you, you, no, 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 you, yeah, you, no. He's not doing that. Why? Because it's, but as a holy condemnation of a guilty people who are condemned to do and be what they have themselves chosen. Who ate the fruit? People. Sin. Through one man entered all people, and we then were by nature children of wrath. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the steadfast love with which he has loved us, has caused us to be born again by grace you have been saved. So don't look at Esau I hated. Rejoice in that Jacob I loved. And these are extremely difficult truths to understand and, they, and to deal with and at the end of the day, we have to remember two primary things here. That God is infinitely sovereign and we are not. 
And second, we must have faith and trust in his purpose as he does, according to Romans 8, work all things together for good. But we cannot ignore the fact that judgment does come to the unbeliever. Because we are all sinners. It is six minutes till 12, and that was point number one. I will cruise through number two. The gift of belief, verse 44. At this point, you're probably saying, please don't go to any more conferences for a long time. And I'm just going to say, a lot of what I'm referring to is stuff that we heard and learned over the weekend, but... Jordan and Byron will both attest, these notes were done before I left, so I'm not just, just, verse 44, and Jesus cried out and said, whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me, and whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as a light, so that whoever believes in, my, in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone, excuse me, hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. God the Father, the word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment. What to say and what to speak. And I know that this commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. So it's not all bad news, right? It's just like you, when you go through the book of Romans, if you start in the beginning, it's just like bad news, bad news, bad news, bad news. You're terrible people. You have no hope in and of yourself. But... But, verse Romans 5, 8, but God has demonstrated his own love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died. So the bad news always gives way to good news. And the good news is this, that God in his grace has chosen to save a remnant of people for his own possession. And again, you might bucket this, but all of Scripture shows this. And I'm going to tell you something that I'm just going to straight up reiterate it. Reiterated it. I'm going to reiterate what I learned this week. And this was something that just absolutely floored me that I had never seen before. But in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve ate the fruit, there was a promise made in verse, chapter 3, verse 15, that Satan would bruise the heel of God's chosen, but that God's chosen would crush the head of the serpent. So God made a promise that you might have think you have won, but I will have the ultimate victory. So then what happens after that? They have two sons, right? Cain and Abel. Now, I, I never thought about this, i never even seen this, but I'm thankful for Vodi who just has a way to teach me stuff like that floors me. But Satan responds immediately. Oh, so the seed, the seed is going to hurt me, not if I take the seed out. So what happens? Cain kills his brother. Then what happens after that? They have another son. His name is Seth, who eventually would have a great, 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 great grandson named Noah who God would set apart as his remnant to save his people. On down the line. Abraham. A pagan. Called by God, set apart by God, redeemed by God. I will make you a great nation. And it's not those who are natural descendants of Abraham because the gospel says that it is a message for every tribe, every nation, every people, and every tongue. And you just see on and on and on. So when we say that all of Scripture is God's great story of redemption, this 
is what we need. And here's the truth. That in Jesus, God sends his message of hope and deliverance. And that those who believe will not perish and they will receive the gift of eternal life. See, this is ultimately God's purpose. Redemption. To save the remnant of people for his own possession. Not damnation. Redemption. That Jesus would seek and save the lost. That he would set the captives free. And it's there that we find every ounce of our motivation for the mission of God. Because I don't know exactly where you're at, right? And and exactly what you believe. Especially in light of the end. I mean, who actually knows? But this is what I know. Because a lot of people will say, oh, well, that kind of thinking, like, why do missions at all? Because God called us to be faithful. He said in Jesus, in Matthew 28, go and make disciples of all nations. Baptize in the name of the Son and the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teach them to observe all that I have commanded you and I will be with you until the very end of the age. We go because we're commanded to go. And maybe you're like, but how do we know who to go to? We don't. That's one of the beauties of it. Because there is no like set list of, well, let's look for this trait and this trait and this trait, and that's who we'll share the gospel with. And if there's anything else that will give you confidence to proclaim the glory of God, I want to tell you this. If we are still here, That means there's a remnant still left to be claimed. Because I believe scripture is clear in this. That when God saves his last set apart person. That's the end. I want you to think about something. Because you may have been. I bet they're mad at me. Um. It's hard for us to share the gospel, isn't it? And, and I sin nature, lack of understanding, just lack of confidence. But our confidence is not in what we know. Our confidence is not in what we can understand and, and remember and memorize. Our confidence is in God and His good news. So here's the deal. God will save His people, right? God will. And by His grace, He is choosing to use us to be a part of that purpose. And and I could share the gospel until I'm dead, and I might not see one more person meet Him. And that's okay. Because I was faithful in doing so. I want to tell you a brief story. I'm not going to get into a lot of details because I know we're already over time and I'm going to get fussed at. Um, Because it sounds like they're like jacked up this morning too. I've been hearing all kind of crazy stuff back here. But there's a missionary named Adoniram Judson. And uh, he moved to this unreached people and he gave his life. To reach them with the gospel. Do you know how many people had trusted in Christ by year six of his ministry? Just take a guess. Zero. Now, I'm just saying, if we'd have planned a new city church October 10th, 2010, and by year six, not one person had met Jesus, you know what I probably would have done? Like, God, I must have misunderstood you. Because the gospel will bear fruit. But Judson didn't quit. He trusted God and wound up leading a massive revival. God is enough. 
And our true belief in who God is and what God is doing will lead us to radical life change. Again, there's absolutely no middle ground. You either believe or you don't believe. But here's the truth. That true belief propels us on a life lived for God's purpose and His glory. Not ours. I don't trust Jesus so I'm going to get something. I don't follow Jesus because I think He's going to bless me. If Jesus has saved me, I am far more blessed than I deserve. Because Jacob has been loved. So we confess our faith in him. When we see that it is Jesus and Jesus alone that saves, we acknowledge our sin, we acknowledge our hopelessness without Christ, and we confess our faith in him. We get baptized, we join a church, and we live every day as a missionary set ablaze for the glory of God. But what does our life reveal? What does your life say? That you believe or you don't? Father, may you speak through the power of your word. And may you save those who are lost in sin.